Most students arrive at college with serious misconceptions about effective learning strategies. In this episode, we examine what we as faculty can do to help students develop their metacognitive skills and become self-regulated learners. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Linda Nielsen, the founding director of the Office of Teaching Effectiveness and Innovation at Clemson University. Dr. Nielsen is the author of many superb books, book chapters, and articles on teaching and learning. Welcome. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Today's teas are... Are you drinking any tea? Yes, I am drinking tea. I am drinking lemon lift. Well, that sounds like a great way to start the day. It is. It's a very good way. Well, I also started it with coffee, but. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm drinking ginger peach black tea. And I have my golden monkey tea today. We've invited you here today to talk about your book, Creating Self-Regulated Learners, Strategies to Strengthen Students' Self-Awareness and Learning Skills. Could you define what it means to be a self-regulated learner? Yes. Self-regulated learning is the conscious planning, monitoring, and evaluation of one's learning for the purpose of maximizing it. That's a very fancy way of putting it. It's that voice in your head that asks you questions about your learning as you're involved in some sort of learning task. Questions like, okay, I'm going to do a reading now. What strategy works best for me? Now, you just might brush over that because you've done readings of this type a dozen times, a hundred times, whatever, but you've asked yourself that question along the way. What's my best strategy? What kind of a task is this? And monitoring, are my strategies working for me? Am I getting it? Can I paraphrase the last couple of paragraphs that I just read? It's a reading thing, but it works also in lecture. And then at the end, you evaluate yourself. Well, Let's see, I had a goal being able to recite five main points from this chapter. Let's see if I can do it without looking at the chapter, of course. (laughs) So you evaluate your abilities, you evaluate your strategies. That's really what it's all about. It involves a great deal of talking to yourself. (laughs) So how did you get interested in talking to yourself? Well, I heard voices. And, you know. <laughs> oh, well, how did I get interested in this topic? Actually, it was an accounting professor at Clemson that got me interested in it. This is 2007, right? This is a long time ago. And so she said to me, what about giving a workshop on self-regulated learning? In my head, I said, huh, what's that? I'd never heard of it. And so I decided to go find out about it. And it took me a few years to really get a workshop together on it. And I decided, gosh, this is wonderful. This is learning how to learn. This is familiar to me because I've been talking to myself for years. (laughs) But I thought, okay, I'm not crazy. This is a learning strategy, a major learning strategy, one that you can use throughout your life. And so I gave the workshop. 
I started giving workshops like at the Pod Network Conference, which is people like me. We go to this conference every year. And then I decided, well, I didn't decide. Book publisher came up to me and said, please write a book on this. I will publish it. Uh Yes, indeed. And so I decided, since I was in love with the topic anyway, I decided, well, let's do it. And so I did. And I really delved into it deeply. As you've described it, it sounds like part of this deals with improving student metacognition, but you know that it goes a bit further. Could you talk about the additional aspects of it? Metacognition is the cognitive part of self-regulated learning, which is a major part of it. However, there are a couple of other elements to it that I don't know that you could say are really focused on cognition. There is the emotional element to it, which involves getting yourself to be motivated and interested in the topic, remembering, reviewing what your professor told you about the relevance of this topic, and thinking about it yourself. We can motivate ourselves. We can reframe a task for ourselves, and we can certainly reframe what is going on in terms of a learning experience. That's a major, major part of it, and the emotional part at the end is, okay, if you didn't reach your goal, what do you do about it? Do you give up, walk away, figure, oh, well, I wasn't born to do engineering or whatever the topic is? No. What you do is you say, let's try another strategy. Let's look into possible strategies. And as instructors, we need to familiarize students with various strategies because they come to us, I like the phrase, as feral children in terms of the life of the mind and what they know about learning. We don't have cognitive psychologists, unfortunately, teaching first grade or fifth grade, whatever. And so we need to acquaint them with how their mind works. It's one of the element, a physical element, and that involves planning, monitoring, and evaluating your setting, your physical setting, as in where do you study the best? If this is like a reading or writing assignment, is it in a coffee shop? Or do you have to essentially be in a soundproof booth where you don't have any stimulation? How much coffee should you have or tea? (laughs) What kind of an environment should you set up for yourself in terms of putting your digital distractions in another room, for instance, if that's an issue? How should you schedule your breaks? Other things that you might want to consider is the amount of sleep that you have, because that can be a very important element of learning and writing. Background noises. Some people do study better to mild background noises as long as they are familiar. They're not distracted by, let's say, music they've never heard before. You got to try out these different things and find out your best setting. In your book, you describe how you became a self-regulated learner. Could you relate that story? Yes, it was based on fear and terror as a child. (laughs) I went to a private Catholic girls' school. Okay, great education, but not in the sweetest of ways. And so from about fifth grade on, we had what was called recitation every single day in English and history classes. And we would sit there and the nuns would ask a question and would randomly call on students' names. And we were dealing with small classes. It wasn't an absurd sort of thing. 
But then we had to get up and we better have the answer to the question. Now, not all the kids did, right? I needed to be Little Miss Perfect because I wanted to get into college. And somehow I thought that the answers that I gave in fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth grade would get me into college or not get me into college. And so I learned to quiz myself while I was reading chapters or reading essays, constantly quizzing myself. And another thing we had to do, usually later in the day, was they called it exercise period. We would have 35 minutes to write an answer to a question that was generally related to the readings. And that was another thing, you know, I mean, we couldn't look at our books. It was desperation that I was trying different strategies so I could perform very well every day. And I was really quite successful. And so I was reading about self-regulated learning. I said, my God, I was doing this as a child. So anyway, that's why it sounded so familiar to me. But that's not the experience I think that the students we have entering our colleges have. You are so right. You are so right. And we don't do this to children anymore, okay? There is a good side to it. There really, really is. Because you do buckle under and get very serious about your homework, very serious about your studies, or you kind of look like an idiot the next day. So anyway, the sport I'm trying to think of is that sport where you get the ice or any kind of ice particles out of the way so the Curling? Curling, curling, yes. We are curling teachers and curling parents. Try to clear the way for our students. We don't want to put them in stressful situations. We don't want to ask Johnny to read if Johnny might not be able to read. And I mean, get up and read. And the problem with this is that students are denied the opportunity for achievement. And there is no achievement without the possibility of failure. There just isn't. So students have no idea what fear and terror in school might be. There's bullying and all that. But I mean from the learning experience. So no, they don't have any kind of experiences that I had for sure. How do we start coaching students then to become self-regulated learners if they're coming out of this really different environment that's much more supportive and yeah. doesn't allow for failure seemingly? They start failing in college. We're still sort of, you know, curling them a little bit but they are really facing a much greater challenge. And they get insecure really quickly because they've been told how special they are and how smart they are and this and that and this and that. And then they begin to question that because they're not doing as well as they were in high school. Or high school, you could get an A relatively easily. Now, oh my, it can be really hard. And then they start getting C's. And then you have their attention. That's a way that you can tell them that there are ways that you can get A's. You did not learn how to study. Here is a way to learn. Does it involve a sort of effort? Sure, but it's really just talking to yourself and deciding what strategies would be best for you, testing out strategies, seeing how they work, and you will be more successful. And there have been studies of students like in developmental courses, things like that, that show that the students who are struggling the most tend to know the least about self-regulated learning strategies and start to do better if they use these strategies. And of course, we've got to get them to use the strategies. We've got to explain these strategies. It can be life-changing for them in the most positive way. I think part of the issue is that faculty generally haven't been taught these strategies themselves. 
They've somehow found ways to be successful, so they become self-regulated learners. But Mm -hmm. faculty are the exceptions. They're not the typical student. And they've never really been trained to teach students how to become more effective learners, in part because they never learn that directly themselves quite often. What can faculty do to be more effective in this way? Well, first of all, faculty have to realize that they're the weird ones and everybody (laughs) else is normal. (laughs) So we have to stop projecting our learning abilities, our strategies, our interest in the life of the mind onto everybody else. We have to not only sell our material, but we have to equip students to learn our material. We don't want to do that. We say, well, they should know by now. Well, guess what? They don't. So what are you going to do about it, right? You've got to start from where they are. The thing is, is teaching students learning strategies, it takes a couple of sentences every course. Now, if you really want to get into self-regulated learning activities and assignments with them, yeah, that might take a few minutes per class period, but you don't have to do it necessarily every class period. And a lot of self-regulated learning activities can go on as homework. It takes no class time at all. This is so easy to do. This is why I think faculty have really been attracted to my book and why I'm asked to speak on it so often, because there's just these little things you can do that don't take away from the content in any way, reinforces the content that makes this huge difference in performance of most students. You can't always bring everybody along with you. There are some people, some students, who just as soon shoot themselves in their foot. But most do not. They find these activities so easy to do. They don't take a lot of time. And they get to know themselves and they start doing better. And so students don't complain about this. Can you describe what a couple of those activities might be? Sure, absolutely. Well, let's consider what the different parts of the course. And I'll just give you just a few. Some of my personal favorites for starting a course, for instance, starting in You can also end it with these sorts of activities. But one of them is a goal-setting activity. You can assign this as homework. You can have students do it in class, but students write on how I earned an A in this course. Now, you would be surprised, and students will be surprised, C students and B students will be surprised, that they kind of know what it takes to earn an A in a course. And they will come up with, you know, well, gosh, I've got to come to class every day, don't I? And in class, I can't fiddle around with my mobile device. And I have to start a paper sort of early. And I have to keep up with the readings and this and that. Okay, fine. So they kind of know. And the thing is, for many people, writing this down is like goal setting for them. They'll think, well, you know, maybe I could do this. Maybe this isn't so absurd. And if you make a discussion out of it afterwards, that the A students will say, yeah, I do these things. It's not unrealistic. And then the C, B, and F students will say, well, let's give it a whirl. Then at the end of the course, you give them another little essay. It's a mini essay assignment. How I earned an A in this course or not. (laughs) True confessions time, right? And so you assess how well you met your goals. And goal setting is definitely a part of self-regulated learning, the planning and then self-evaluation at the end. Another thing that you can do is you can give your students essay questions. If you give an essay final or have any essays on it at all, 
you can give them the essays on the final to take. This will not take very long in terms of class time at all because students will say, well, I don't know. And they'll try to BS an answer. You know, I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. So they will try, but they could be really quite wrong. Now, at the end for the final, they correct their answers and then rewrite these answers given the knowledge that they have gained throughout the course. This can be really interesting for faculty, for not just faculty, well, it can be interesting for them too, because they can see exactly what students learned. So it is sort of a measure of learning, but it can be very interesting for students so they can really see what they learned in the course. And faculty will never get that comment on the student evaluation saying, well, I didn't learn anything in this course. Never again. That's gone. So anyway, those are a couple of things that you can do. Little assignments you can make on the readings. Little reflection exercises, as in things like, what did you think was the most important point in this reading? What surprised you the most? What connections can you make between what you read and your prior knowledge, what you already know, or to your life, or to your emotional reactions to it, if the material is amenable to that. So those are little reflections you can do in the reading. Another exercise is, it's a self-testing exercise. It's called read, recall, review. And this is really the way to do reading. It really is. Forget about rereading. That's what students would be reading. Waste of time. What students should do is read, read a portion of the chapter or read the whole chapter, put their notes away, close the book, and then recall as much as they can and write it down. Then they should go back and look for in the chapter what they forgot and what they might have gummed up. And they kind of know that, oh, I didn't really get that point. And so they go back and look at it and then they recall again. Read recall review. Studies that have been done on this, it is so much more effective than constant rereading. <laughs> and it really doesn't take that long. And then you actually have the material in your head, even in your long-term memory. You get retrieval practice, you get deliberate practice. So there's nothing as good as testing yourself except, well, the nicest thing we can do for students is to test them. In lectures, I should say really mini lectures, it's a good idea to have students do this. You stop, let's say, every 15 minutes or so, and you have students do the same thing. Write down everything that they can recall and then work with their neighbor to fill in the blanks, their own blanks. And, you know, they can ask any questions. First, they ask their neighbor questions and then they ask you questions. And this doesn't take very long at all. This might take, let's say, five minutes. But then you know that the students got it and can remember it. Again, most effective studies done on this too. So this makes students aware of their learning or their lack of their learning. You can give students what's called active learning checks. This is a little exercise that you do. So you do your mini lecture and then you stop. And by the way, you warn students you're going to do this so they're listening so that you ask them okay what are the three major points in my last mini lecture that I talked about in the last 15 minutes okay so then they write those things down and it could be two things it could be four things pending 
and they write those things down and turn them in. They don't really have to turn them in, but you know, you might want to see yourself. So they write those things down and then you reveal the three most important points. And then they are monitoring and evaluating their learning skills. Now, students are motivated to want to learn how to listen to you. So they want to improve. According to a study that was done, they improve really quickly. The first time you do this, 45% of the students got all three points correct. By the third time, 75% of the students got this correct. Remarkable progress, really remarkable. Then there are meta assignments. Let's say we've got a problem-solving field like chemistry or math. Here's what we do. We are denying students learning opportunities when all we do is mark the wrong answers as wrong or incomplete or whatever, and then we drop the subject. Students should be able to correct their mistakes for half the points back or whatever. In other words, they're going to learn how to solve that problem if it's the last thing they do. (laughs) And again, you give them some sort of an incentive and they learn. Then they know how to do this versus are just dropping it, which is typically what we do. And there have been studies on this technique as well. It's extremely effective. And students can learn not just from you, but they can learn in groups and peers can help each other very effectively. There is a wrapper, they're called wrappers, for an exam, a reflection students do after they get their exams back, where they ask themselves questions and write down the answers, like, gee, how did your expected grade compare with your actual grade? How do you feel about that? (laughs) So they have to look at the exam and what your feedback is on the exam. How many hours did you study? Gee, was that enough? What did you do for studying? Might you want to change your strategies? Why did you lose points? Were there any patterns that you see here? And how are you going to study more effectively for the next exam? This has been life-changing for students because they've never thought about this sort of thing before. They've never really looked at their exams, their mistakes. They drop them too, right? They don't want to see what they did wrong. And these are the best learning opportunities possible. They will remember. We remember our mistakes. We learn from our mistakes. And it's sad that we don't stop and use those errors. These are just a small sample. I mean, I can give you lots more. (laughs) (laughs) And there are many in the book, which we strongly recommend to people. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of what you're talking about seems tied to growth mindset as well. Exactly. And this creates, this generates the growth mindset because students learn that they can learn. They can do better. Because otherwise they feel like their learning is kind of like the weather. Maybe it'll rain on me and maybe (laughs) there's really nothing I can do about it because it's all about you, professor. You are responsible for my learning, just like the fates are responsible for the weather. (laughs) And if I'm not learning, you're not a good instructor or you're pitching the material over my head or your teaching strategies are wrong, or what have you. And so everybody else gets blamed but yourself. And then they start to realize, oh, I can do this. Now, this isn't the best news for them in the world, because then they have to start taking responsibility for their learning. And that can be, for some students, it'll be a hard pill to swallow. For other students, it'll be very empowering. And that's what we want to encourage in students is that sense of empowerment. 
And that's especially important, I think, in freshman-level classes because students generally don't come in with that type of mindset. They've often been able to blame it on the teacher and do things over and over again until they get the grade they want or get the extensions and so forth with a focus on self-esteem in many classrooms. Oh, yeah. Self-esteem without achievement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's an adjustment. So if they come in with a fixed mindset and they're confronted with failure, it's pretty easy to give up. So we need to encourage students, I think, to see failure as a learning opportunity, as you've mentioned. As instructors, I think we have to somehow convince them of that because they don't come in naturally picking it up. But the techniques you've mentioned are very good for that. You know, our whole society makes them feel they're not responsible for their learning. Because look at what happens in K through 12. Students have to take these standardized tests. And if they don't do well, gee, who gets blamed and who suffers? The teacher and the school. And that's nuts. Okay, that is just absolutely crazy. Because in the final analysis, we teach ourselves. We are responsible for our own learning. Now, good teaching can make a big difference because we can be motivated or we can be unmotivated by teaching. We can learn learning strategies through teaching or not. So it's not that students are just left adrift on their own. We do have to help them. We do have to put them in learning experiences where learning becomes attractive for them, or you can't help but learn, right? But they've got to pick up that learning and run with it themselves. So you mentioned the idea of encouraging students to see learning and the self-regulation as empowering. What about those students who are a little resistant to that because it's surprising to them that they're not getting it and they're failing and that it's going to be more work? What are some things that we can do to encourage those students to see things a little differently? Yes. Well, first of all, if they're failing and they subconsciously want to, it happens. It really does. (laughs) There is now a whole lot you can do about it. They might need some counseling and they might need to get some help from professionals in other areas like psychologists. But again, it can be difficult for students to realize that the ball is in their court because it's a whole different gestalt for them. The only cure for that is success, a little bit of success, where they start doing a little better, let's say, on the quiz on the readings, or they start being able to solve more problems. That's really the only cure. And we are assuming that they want to be successful. And again, if they prefer failure, then they are responsible for their own failure. (laughs) Right. They're the ones that are normal. And we are not, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. exactly. Maybe that should be the refrain of this interview, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. They are the normal ones and we are strange. (laughs) And we always have been strange. We were the strange kids in school too. (laughs) In your book, you mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect as being a barrier to some students. The students who don't understand things as well often overestimate their understanding. How can we overcome that? Yes, well, self-regulated learning helps when we give them activities and assignments where they do self-evaluation, because the only way to learn self-evaluation is through practice. Practice with feedback, and that feedback can come from ourselves. It doesn't always come from you. It can come from you. It can come from peers. It can come from a computer program, but we need practice at self-evaluation, and we don't give students a lot of practice in this, and they certainly haven't had much of it in K-12 at all. But the nice thing is that when we have students look back to see if they met their goals or 
to evaluate their study strategies or to assess their mistakes and look at the reasons for their mistakes. It makes all the difference in the world. It really does all that low stakes practice, very low stakes. So then you can introduce higher stakes self-evaluation type of assignments and get more savvy self-evaluations. What recommendations do you have for faculty who'd like to start building more self-regulation? Are there small steps that faculty could take to get started on this path? Absolutely. There is a sense in which most of the assignments, most of the activities are small, little things. Here's a little thing you can start out the course with. I was talking about essay questions and all that. But you could just have students do a little reflection the first day and then again on the last day about the subject matter, as in, what do you think chemistry is? Or what is chemistry? Why is it a science? You can find out a lot about students' misconceptions just by looking at these reflections. And then, of course, they hopefully corrected a lot of misconceptions by the end. This could take like all of five minutes the first day. There are so many little things. Here's something like an experiential learning. It's so easy for students to not make a connection between, oh, the fun simulation or the interesting role play, the service learning experience or field work or whatever, and not make a connection back to the course. So it's important that whenever you do an experiential assignment or activity, that students reflect on what they are learning. As in, let's say, like for a simulation, to look back and explain what their goals were, to evaluate how well they met their goals, to assess their strategies, how their strategies changed, and their responses to other players. It's very important that students become conscious of what's going on in their heads, because only by becoming conscious of that do you remember the strategies, right? (laughs) And then you can write them down and articulate them. And they're all yours. Little papers, things that you can have students do associated with papers and projects. For them to be recording, and this would be while they're doing it, the process they are following. And if you've given them a process to follow, like they even have a skeletal outline for what they should be doing. This is a good place also for self-evaluation. If you have them do a revision, oftentimes you give students feedback on what they should revise and they may or may not look at your advice. So you can have them, let's say, paraphrase your feedback back to them and then write out their goals for the revision. What are they going to do? What are their strategies for revision? These are just little things. Students don't, they feel, oh, I got to write something else. But then they start to realize the value of this. And again, this is an assignment where you can't screw up. It's not a test. It's just a reflection on what's going on in your head. Students like to learn about themselves. And this is like the reading reflections. If this is like no stress, right? How do you mess this up? It takes less stress to just write an honest answer than it is to make one up. It sounds <laughs> credible. And I want to make faculty aware The activities don't have to be graded at all. The assignments don't really have to be graded. You grade them, pass, fail. Okay, that's all you got to do. And they pass if, let's say you had them answering three questions, three reflections. You look at it. Did they answer three reflections? 
Is it vaguely on the chapter? Okay, it's not about football. It's something about in the chapter. <laughs> and did they meet the length requirement? It's always a good idea to give length requirements on these reflections because for students, length means depth. So if you ask them to write a minimum of 150 words, you know, they'll tend to do that. Those who don't, hey, they fail. Now, when I say 150 words, you don't go and you count every word that students write. You don't even have to go up to review if they send them to you in a word processed form. You don't have to do any of that. You eyeball it. And so essentially you are, quote, grading pass-fail at a glance. It doesn't take much time. First of all, get students to do the readings. Gee whiz. In the easiest way and the most productive way for them. And it's all about them. And it's not about us. We just have to hold them accountable in some very, very quick sort of way. And even the longer assignments that you might associate with a paper or project, even those can be graded pass fail. Now, you have to make them worth some points. Sure. If you're still on a point system, there are alternatives. And that's what specifications grading is all about. You don't have to use points. But in any case, you do have to at least eyeball them and make them of some value in your course, however you are grading. That communicates to students that this is important to you, that you put value on this, quote, meta assignment or assignment wrapper, as you might call it. The same thing with this post-exam wrapper, these reflections on this exam. Okay, you make students do it because let's say it's worth 10 points if they simply complete it and hand it in, even though it's for them. And they will realize right away that there has been value to this. Again, for some students, it will be life-changing in the most positive way. And they will start to realize the way that they've been taking exams maybe are not the best and certainly not the way they prepared or maybe what they tend to do when they're taking an exam is to misread the question or to be careless, or to not budget their time, or to not really thoroughly study all the material. They get tired at the end of their study, or they cram. That's a great way to screw it up because, yeah, you can remember some things the next day, not everything. So cramming's not very effective. But yeah, you can have students do these things, give them some sort of value, but they're little things, and you don't have to spend time actually grading them or giving any feedback at all. You don't have to give feedback on every little thing. They can give themselves their own feedback if they did it and they get the 10 points. Okay, that's plenty of feedback for them. They did it. You regard it as they're meeting the requirements of the assignment. And this is a topic you cover in another book on specifications grading, which is also another book we'd like to recommend. We'll include a link to both of those in the show notes. The title of the book is Specifications Grading, colon, Restoring Rigor, Motivating Students, it's been found to be motivating, and Saving Faculty Time, Saving You Time. And this is a grand thing because if there's one thing we don't have, it's time. Time is really more precious to us than money. I mean, we'd be in some venture capital firm or something, <laughs> but time is really quite a precious thing for us. So in terms of these sort of assignments for self-regulated learning assignments, they're all what we'd call specs graded. 
you set out the specs, they're very simple, and that's it. And you just grade on that basis, grade pass fail on that basis. I think pointing out how it doesn't have to be complicated for faculty is important because I think we all want students to learn. We all want them to be self-regulated learners. We all want to give students feedback, but we don't want to make it impossible for us to keep up with our work. Yeah. Or feedback that's going to get ignored anyways. Right. (laughs) Well, again, when you're worried about students reading the feedback, the feedback is valuable. We've given it. We've taken the time. You make them paraphrase it back to you. And this could be a learning experience for us because we might be, quote, misread. Students might not understand something that we've said. Awkward, that's my favorite one. A sentence structure is awkward. What does that mean? That student didn't set out to write an awkward sentence. That in itself will not help them because they don't know what you're talking about. Then this is most unfortunate. But again, it's a learning experience for us and we can learn to express ourselves somewhat differently, give different kinds of feedback. But yeah, too often, Students will get back a paper from us and they look at the grade. They read the paragraph at the end of the paper and then they put it in the quote, their circular file. They dump it, right? They don't read that feedback. So how are they going to get better? So that could be a very valuable exercise for them. And you can let them gain back some points for it. I just think that faculty should look at themselves as responsible for helping our students learn. They don't come to us with those skills. And we can be the finest instructor in the world. We can have the most interesting classes and we can really hold their attention and we can motivate them. We can do all these wonderful things. But if they don't know how to process that material in their own minds, it's all for naught. It's simply not going to happen. Now, maybe, hopefully, seniors have learned to learn their material along the line. And by the way, there can be different learning strategies for different subject matter. There really can be. There are different self-regulated learning activities and assignments for problem-solving, mathematically-based fields, but different ones for the social sciences and humanities because there are different kinds of assignments, different kinds of readings actually different kinds of lectures. So we have to respect that, but we have to become conscious of study strategies, learning strategies, our strategies, and other strategies that are out there. But self-regulated learning strategies, to my mind, they're the shortest distance between two points, shortest distance between ignorance and learning, because it's all going on in your head. And it's so powerful, the value of it to students becomes evident rather quickly. And it's a skill that can help through a whole lifetime, not just while they're in college. And I think helping students realize that is also really valuable. And you know what? Like no other generation, these younger generations are going to have to learn to learn on their own. They're going to have to keep up with their field, whatever their field is. And they might have to very likely have to pivot into another field because their field might run its course. And so, well, this field is dying. I've got to do something else. And they're going to have to learn on their own. You're not going to have employers holding your hand, not at all. You're going to have to probably be learning online where you really are responsible for your own processing, more so than you might feel, let's say, in a face-to-face class. So, and your own motivating as well. And there needs to be more motivation than simple fear that you will (laughs) go hungry and won't be able to get a job. There should be more than that to it. So yes, students are going to really, really have to learn how to learn. 
If they consider that a bitter pill, that's too bad. This is reality. This is life. And most of them have not learned that life is hard. Many of them have learned life. Like, you know, they're wondering where their next meal is coming from. But a lot of students have not. And who's paying for it? And it's not them. So anyways, your students need to learn along the line that life is not easy, that nobody does curling on their path. And they will face challenges. But if they have the strategies for facing these challenges, hey, no problem. They needn't be paralyzed. They needn't freeze. You've offered some really good advice. And I think our listeners will appreciate this. And it's really powerful. Yeah, I agree. We're all wondering, what's next for you? I'm actually director emeritus. I'm actually retired from Clemson University. But you know how academics, <laughs> they don't disappear. They just sort of like fade away. So I'm trying to ease into retirement because it's not an easy thing to do, right? Not when you love what you've been doing. But I have sworn off writing books. That's progress. Okay. <laughs> I've written some articles and chapters in other people's books. So that's fine. And I'm still traveling to give keynotes and faculty workshops. That's hard to give up because, gee, it's kind of interesting to go somewhere else, go somewhere <laughs> new. And I still give webinars and podcasts, things like that. But eventually, I won't be doing that anymore. And then I want to ultimately work with animals, of all things. I do love animals, but I'm still busy doing this and still loving doing this, but also loving just as much not having to do bureaucratic things for the university <laughs> and not having to stay up until two in the morning doing my email. That was really fun, especially when I'm traveling, not have to worry about, oh, what's going on back at the office while I'm off in Texas or somewhere. So I'm not complaining about retirement. I really like where I'm at right now, but I know that I will eventually fade into the sunset and that's okay because then I'll reinvent myself. <laughs> It sounds like some self-regulation was going on there, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to retire, but not too quickly. <laughs> well, we're glad you haven't fully yeah. yet. <laughs> this was really great. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you for this opportunity. I hope that I have helped some faculty members out there to help them help their students to achieve more. Because again, we all do want our students to learn. We're all in love with our material. It's worth learning. And we just have to help our students do that. So thank you ever so much. And thank all you listeners for listening. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Chris Wallace, Kelly Knight, Joseph Andrew, Jacob Alveson, Brittany Jones, and Gabriella Perez. Music.